1: Welcome, everyone, and I'm very happy to have the opportunity today to conduct a podcast uh, for the Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness channel of the New Books Network. My name is Jack Petranker, and um, our guest today is Michal Pages, who is a senior lecturer at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Bar Ilan University in Israel? Michal, welcome.
0: Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Jack.
1: Great. So, uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, Michal's book called Inward Vipassana Meditation and the Embodiment of the Self, which is published by the University of Chicago Press. And I should mention at the outset that the book has been um, received honorable mention in the theory section of the um, American Sociological Association. So congratulations for that honor, Michal. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what led up to your writing the book?
0: hmm Yeah. Well, um, You know, I I must start by saying that um, for this podcast, I had the chance to reread the book. (laughs) Um, And that's a very interesting experience to read your own book. Um, And to think back about this whole project and how it started. Um, Actually, it started um, almost 15 years ago. Um, So this is the outcome of a long ethnographic project um, that started um, by combining my interest in meditation and my interest in sociology. And um, thinking back, I think that um, I was in many ways attracted to meditation or Vipassana meditation in this case um, because it has resonance with sociological thought or anthropological thought. Um, Something about the deconstruction or the construction of the social of the self that sociology offers, I think I also found in meditation. Um, But I started meditating before I started this project. And um, Even before, I think, mindfulness was a buzzword, Um, I uh, had the chance to participate in a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat in Israel. And that was a very interesting experience for me. And only a few years after, when I was in Chicago and I lived in the US for a few years, I realized that meditation is becoming a very popular phenomena around campus. Um, And a meditation center opened just at the time, not far away from Chicago. And I decided that this should be an interesting research project. So this is, I guess, how I started um, combining these two interests.
1: Good. So, so I, I'm interested in what you say about um, vipassana having uh, a, a kind of an overlapping. Um, I don't know if we call it the methodology, but but you know a way of deconstructing or constructing, as you said, the self. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I, I don't think most people would would make that connection. You know, an academic discipline. Um, and and a meditative discipline. So can you say more about how you connect those two?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, from a sociological point of view, the self is a social construct. So um, um, when we think about ourselves or talk about ourselves or um, interact with ourselves, um, we do so through the eyes of others. So um, in many ways, we are... What others, or what we think that others think about us, um, we relate to ourselves as others relate to us. This is also a very um, uh, important uh, social psychological insight. And I think that in sociology, when I first started um, learning about the sociology of the self and Goffman, for example, who is I think the most read American sociologist. Um, the, there is some kind of relief in understanding that whatever we are projecting to others is not actually real in many ways. It is just a kind of agreement between all of us, all the social actors, that this is who I am. Um, and that the shame or that we feel or the embarrassment or the... The pride are all just dependent on what Goffman says. Our attachment um, to this image that we've created for us. And um, I remember when I first um, went to this first uh, vipassana course, and this this is I the group I studied is uh, vipassana meditation is taught by a sanguenca. So in the retreat there were these. Lectures in the evening by Gwenca, and I remember him saying, um, "What is this image of of who you are? Why is it so important? Was why what others think of you? What is this self?" And I realized how similar, how how almost Goffman like he sounds, um, since from a Buddhist point of view, um, the self is. A construct that we get attached to. And one of the important um, insights um, that um, practitioners of meditation are supposed to get, this is why also Vipassana is called insight meditation, is the insight of the not-self or anatta, that there is no such thing as a self. All you have is this um, constantly shifting and moving in permanent aggregate of um, body and mind. So um, these similarities are really interesting. Um, it should be said that from a sociological point of view, without a self, without being able to see yourself through the eyes of others, you can't really function in the social world. So um, it it's a burden. <laughs> but it is a required burden. Um, And I think that though, from a sociological point of view, you understand that the self is only a construct. It is only in meditation that you actually experience something like that, that you actually experience a way to push back the self as viewed by others. And this is what I try to show in the book of how meditation, Vipassana meditation, is a collective effort to push back the self as viewed by others. It's very paradoxical because you need the group, you need others in order to forget about others. You need to be with other meditators, meditating together in order to find that spot <laughs> in which you can relax your anxieties about the self.
1: Okay, so that's a really interesting point that that comes up again and again in the book, that although meditation is very much an interior practice, and and you point that out very clearly, um, you're also saying that it's really important for the the meditator to have this connection with other meditators, and and I, as I understand it, you link it to that exactly to the sense that you were just talking about, that um, the self has to be, that, that you have to be able to recognize yourself through the others. I may not be saying that quite right, but is that basically it?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the puzzles that I encountered very early in my research is that People refer to their meditation experiences as a very solitary experience. They say things like, um, I'm going to a meditation retreat in order to face myself, or meditation is something between me and myself. I even had one incident, I remember, in which I um, called a practitioner and asked him if I could interview him, and he said, why would a sociologist Study meditation. So um, the, the puzzle I, I wanted to, um, to flesh out or the solution I wanted to uncover um, is to show how these, this solitary experience is actually produced by being with others. So meditation is usually practiced in a group. You can practice meditation on your own, but um, there is a huge demand for group meditation training. It's usually in a group. Uh, When a lot of the people I talked to said that they tried to practice meditation alone or to train using an application um, or using a book, but they were not able to. And the togetherness is really important, but it is a very strange form of togetherness. So for that, I want to describe um, a meditation retreat um, for those who are maybe less familiar with it. So a meditation retreat um, is, it could be one day, three days, or 10 days in which you leave your life behind in many ways. You say um, you disconnect from the external world, um, you cannot use your phone, you do not read pa- newspapers, you do not watch TV, you can't even read books. Um, so um, you enter this space um, with other people. All the other people are usually strangers. Um, um, in these retreats I studied, people are discouraged from um, coming with friends. And if they do arrive with friends, they will not share the same room. So you are alone, but you are also together with others. And the most important factor um, in this special or social arrangement is silence. People are silenced during the retreat. They are asked not to talk to others, not to gesture one another. Um, They can talk to the teacher, um, but they um, are not supposed to communicate, even though they are sharing the same room, they are sharing the same uh, dining hall, they are sharing the same meditation hall, of course. Um, And this social arrangement, um, I I called it um, collective solitude. Because on the one hand, this is a very collective space. I mean, if you look at a meditation hall, people are sitting one next to the other um, in quite close proximity. Um, they can hear one another. They can hear one another breathe, breathing. They can he- smell one another. <laughs> um, they can certainly hear if someone cries or laughs or um, cough and all these things happen during meditation retreats. Um, But on the other hand, because they're not communicated, they are not actually engaging with one another. Um, They are aware of one another, but they are not communicating in the regular, normal mode of social interaction in everyday life. So they do not present a self to other in the regular sense of you know, small talk. How are you doing? Where are you? I'm, where I'm from? Am I married? <laughs> and so on. All these details do not enter the meditation retreat. People do not know if the person next to them is married, if he's um, um, a student, or um, what kind of work he does in, his, in the external world. All these social identities are just left outside. They're like, you hang them You know, when you enter the meditation retreat, you have to hang them outside. You can't bring them in. Um, But the presence of others is still very important. And I show in the analysis in the book how, for example, people spend time in the minds of others. They imagine, they try to imagine is this person next to me? Is he now relaxed? He looks relaxed. (laughs) They listen. Are really people not moving? Yeah, they're not moving. So I shouldn't move as well. Um, The other way around also happens. Someone moves and then suddenly you find yourself moving. Or a cough is heard and then someone else coughs and then someone moves. So there is this mutual embodied influence of one person on the other in the meditation hall and in the meditation center at large. And this mutual influence is key um, for progressing in meditation.
1: Can you say something about that? How, how does that help with with progress in meditation?
0: Okay, so what I show in the book is that in the first stage, of training, um, usually novice meditators use quite regular social-psychological um, mechanisms um, of learning, such as imitation. So they imitate others, and there are all kind of really interesting imitations going on. For example, if one meditator um, suddenly um, brings a Different cushion to the whole or sits in a different position <laughs> that looks a bit more comfortable than the others Suddenly, also try that new position. Um, so there is imitation. There is um, role. There are role models. So the students that sit in the front row are more experienced meditators, and the one that's the ones that sit behind them know that. So they. Imitate what they're doing. They're not a, there isn't a lot to imitate because meditation seems like a very passive thing. You just sit there, right? But it's more active than we think because you have to sit with your eyes closed, without moving, um, observing your sensations, which is the main um, uh, practice of vipassana meditation, especially in the tradition I studies. So you observe, observe your breath. You observe different sensations in the body, and you, when you, you constantly have to fight. At least in the first, you know, three or four days of the meditation retreat, you're constantly fighting the urge to move. So not moving is a very active thing. And when you see others in the front row, oh, the teacher, of course, um, sitting very quietly, very silently. That's a very important mechanism as well. Um, questions like, um, if I move, then the person next to me is going to hear it and I'm going to disturb his meditation. So these are also important, um, mechanism for keeping silence, for continuing. Um, I have, uh, um, um, in interviews, I heard people telling me that they were worried about what others would think of them and the importance, how important it was for them you know to project the, a good meditator self to others. Um, so this is, this is what happens in the first stages. But what I found is that being too conscious of what others think of me when meditating is a problem. Because then what you're doing is constantly thinking about yourself instead of doing meditation. And this is very contradictory to the point of vipassana and meditation in general. So the practice of meditation is not just about focus. It's not just about non-movement. It's about the slowly learning to Divert your attention away from others and the way you think others see you to what I refer to the inner lining of experience. And you do it very slowly. It's not something that happens in the first day or the second day, and it's it it repeats itself so you can find myself yourself in the later in the retreat, going back to thinking about others and so on. But um, you have to move from thinking about others as audience to being with others in a state which I name um, bodily co-dwellers. And bodily co-dwelling is a state in which you are focused on the inner lining, but you're still synchronizing with others. our bodies tend to synchronize with others emotionally in terms of rhythm, in terms of movement. And you see that happening during collective meditation how silent bodies affect one another. And um, as I said, when there is movement, movement affects others. I have this um, one of the stories I tell in the book is um, when. Suddenly one of the wi- one of the women in the meditation hall started laughing giggling let's be exact she was giggling and she was trying to control her giggle but it was very difficult and then suddenly another woman started giggling and then a third woman started giggle- giggling and they all three giggled together they seemed it looked like as if they were friends but as i later found out they didn't know one another and this giggling episode I think, clustered around um, a few minutes. And then they all fell back into silence. Now, what was interesting in this whole scenario is first, of course, we have um, emotional contagion. So people are um, um, affected by the emotions of others. Um, and laughing is one just one example. Um, but while the three women were laughing, all the others in the meditation hall were sitting quietly. No one told them be quiet. No one looked at them. <laughs> um, no one asked them why they're laughing. And in their silence, they signaled these women, these women, to to get back to meditation, to um, observe that giggling episode, and move on. Um, and Once they moved on, they synchronized back with the silence of the group and with the relaxation in many ways of the group, which is also an emotional state that can be contagious. Um, So this is a movement, you know, a movement between um, what would other think of me, what is going on, um, what are other thinking, um, to a state in which others are there but they're not in the focus of attention, but they're still helping you in their presence to enter deep meditation.
1: So the giggling episode is, is, uh, I I can empathize with that, Um, having sat in meditation, having had that come up. um, One of the points you make about about the way that uh, Vipassana meditation is taught in the Goenka centers is that there's a very strong emphasis on bodily sensations. So would the right way to think about this, I don't know if you interviewed any of the gigglers, but would the right way to think about this was, was that even while they were giggling, the, the idea at least was to be really focused on, on the physical sensations involved in giggling and not perhaps the, um, the sense of, of discomfort or, oh, I'm doing this wrong, or um, how can I stop this, mm-hmm. things like that.
0: Exactly, exactly. So um, I actually spoke with one of the gigglers <laughs> at the end of the course, um, mm-hmm. and um, I remember her telling me that she doesn't even know why she started giggling. I mean, it, there was no, no um, specific event that triggered it. It was more her feeling that everything was very strange and that she couldn't find any meaningful logic for everyone sitting there um, and uh, just silently observing themselves. Um, And yeah, in order to disconnect from this sense of awkwardness um, and go back to meditation, um, she attempted to um, observe the sensations of giggling, which means observing, um, for example, um, the movement in the facial muscles when you giggle, or even um, trying to focus on the little sounds that giggling make. Now, what happens when you do that? And that happens in giggling. It happens in crying. You know, in different emotional state, is that giggling is no longer funny. Um, It's no longer connected to the cause that produced the giggling in the first place. It's it's a kind of um, um, creating or bracketing um, the emotion, or I call it zooming in. Zooming in into the emotion, in in this case, into the physical aspects of the emotions. And once you zoom into these physical aspects... um, it um, the full picture kind of um, dissolves and all you're left with is the little muscles that are moving, you know, a little itchiness here, a little itchiness there. Maybe if you're giggling and a tear came down, some, some wetness on the, on the cheek, um, but there is no meaning or um, in this story, no narrative to the story now that continues that emotion. Um, I show that also with crying. Um, crying is also a very common emotion in meditation retreats. Um, how in how um, a woman that was crying um, during one of the group meditation sitting um, went outside, and um, I was at that specific meditation course. I was um, um, what's called. Um, Um, course helper so I was helping the um, the teacher to translate from English to Hebrew because he didn't speak Hebrew and the course was in Israel so I was doing both participant observation but the participation was actually also being a helper and she was crying and um, he asked me to go and see if, if she's okay and I went and I actually talked to her, um, and she told me her story. She was a very lonely woman. Um, she was a new immigrant to Israel. Her two daughters left the house. Um, she said that meditation is a very good thing in her life, but that she, um, she's, she needs people. She wants to help people. She wants to love people. Um, and she relaxed when she talked to me and um, I left. But the day after um, her neighbor told the teacher that she cried all night and the teacher asked her to join him and talk to him. And she sat in front of him and I sat there to translate and I was sure that she is now going to tell him the whole story of how lonely she is and her daughter is that left the house and that she needs company But that didn't happen. The teacher asked her, how are you doing? And she said, not so good. I'm crying. And he said, he answered, when you cry, cry, but cry like a Vipassana meditator. When one tear comes down, observe the tear. When the other tear comes down, observe the tear, observe the wetness on the cheek. When the storm comes, don't let it overcome you. And later, when I was thinking about this episode, I realized how different it is to talk to someone and tell the story of crying, which is a very holistic experience. There is a narrative of crying, of why am I crying, and my life, and my identity, and my social world. All of this is a part of the story that is behind crying. And crying is an expressive, you know, an expressive emotion telling me. This is how I feel. And in contrast, observing the tears that come down on the cheeks, not thinking about the reason for my sadness, not thinking about my daughters, not thinking about me being an immigrant, just observing the tears that come down on the cheek or observing um, sensations of heat in the area of the head or in the hand. Um It's a zooming in into the crying that eventually dissolves it
1: yeah that uh, that makes good sense, and it it raises a question for me that um, I had while 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 reading the book um, and and you do discuss it some toward the end. and that is this um, this question about how is Vipassana as um, SN Goenka taught it, Related to Buddhism, because you 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 point out that um, he's actually pretty clear uh, the the meditation practice is not has nothing to do with Buddhism. Um, and yet, when people go into more advanced retreats or as they gain experience and go into longer retreats, then they do start to study Buddhist methods. And what you're describing seems like it would be a method for really, deconstructing the story of the self, as you said, the self-image. So in that sense, it seems like a very Buddhist practice, um, but it's not presented, if I understand you correctly, in a Buddhist context. So can you say some more about that?
0: Yeah. Um, Well, Gwenka insists of meditation not being a Buddhist practice, but he does speak of um, the teaching of the Buddha and of Dharma. So um, there is still a connection back to the original context. And this is in contrast, for example, when you compare it to the more contemporary uh, mindfulness practices or what's called sometimes a, a psychological mindfulness um, or a even medical mindfulness in which Buddhism was completely erased. So you don't hear even about Buddha. Um, So what Gwenka tried to do is um, kind of um, push back um, the Buddhist religious spiritual connection um, in order to secularize and popularize the practice. And he's not alone, of course, in this attempt. It's a part of a much bigger attempt that we see that is exercised by um, meditation teachers, um, especially in the West. Um, but this is mainly done in the first courses. Once you start penetrating um, the practice, or once you um, continue and you deepen you know, you your practice, um, the practice becomes much more Buddhist. Um, so, in, for example, after taking three ten-day courses, um, you can join a seven-day course that is um, called the Satipatthana Sutta course. Which in this course you actually read the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, that um, Vipassana meditation is based on that Sutta. Um, and you actually discuss, you know, the teachings of the Buddha and what he referred to and how the meditation practice is related related to these teachings. And the more you continue, and I did not participate in courses longer than 10, ten days, but I did interview people and spoke to people who did 20-day t- courses and 30-day courses and even 60-day courses, then the Buddhist cosmology, um, the different planes, um, reincarnation, all of these become an important part of the teachings. Um, So there is this um, um, movement um, um, that in the beginning um, the practice is introduced as more as a therapeutic practice in many ways that is suitable to anyone coming from any religious background. But as you progress, um, you find out um, the more, let's say, religious background or religious possibilities, I must (laughs) must say, um, of this practice. And there are people who, by the way, do not progress. So I would say that the majority of the people who practice vipassana meditation, only do 10 days courses and never tried a longer course, and therefore we're not exposed to the parts of the teachings that are more religious or Buddhists.
1: So it's interesting when you mention the satipatthana, and I don't want to go into that because it's really not part of what you discussed in the book, but, but just very briefly because it does relate to something that's striking about the practice as you describe it. In the Satipatthana, they talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, and the, the first is um, the body, mindfulness of the body. And it seems as though it, the practice as it's discussed or presented um, in, in um, the Goenka teachings, it really focuses completely on the body. So it, it's a little surprising to me that it would then go on to these other elements. Can you say something about that, the other foundations? Yeah.
0: Yes, yeah, so um, as, as you said in the Satipatthana Sutta, there are four objects of attention, the body, bodily sensations, the mind and mind objects. And um, different Vipassana traditions uh, put emphasis on differently on these different aspects. And um, the Venka tradition that is based on his Burmese teacher, Ubakin. Khin, put a lot of emphasis on the body and bodily sensations. So these two, first two. (laughs) Um, So you are not directly observing thought. You are observing sensations. Um, What you do is you sit first um, for um, a, a period, for a small period, you observe breathing which is a bodily sensation. Um, And then you move to scanning the body in a process that is called body scan and just moving um, on the surface of the body, gliding on the surface of the body and observing all kinds of sensations that come up. It could be itchiness, it could be pain, it could be um, electricity, heat, whatever comes up. Now, um, when you do so, Eventually you're also um, observing the mind because usually you do it for one minute, two minutes, and then you suddenly realize that you are now thinking about the meal that you are supposed to eat after you finish meditation or that you're thinking about the conversation you had yesterday. Everyone who ever tried meditating <laughs> have that experience. So now we are observing the mind or objects of the mind but you are asked to bring back the mind to the body. So um, from Venka perspective, um, the body or bodily sensation is a door to enter the full Vipassana in the end. Um, So eventually you are doing a full observation of body and mind. But for those who are... um, interested in the more therapeutic side of the practice, um, which a lot of people in contemporary society are interested. It could be therapeutic, self-exploration, um, um, relaxation, uh, refuge in the body. Um, this focus on the body is um, provides um, a sense of anchor um, the body is something that is very um, subjective. It's something that we can hold on to. It, it's very central in our experience. Um, it's, it's a self in many ways. It's not the same self as the sociological self. It's not a self as viewed by others. It's a self that Merleau-Ponty, the phenomenologist, talk about. Um, a natural self, he said. The body is a natural self. Um, so it, for them, it provides, um, a way to connect with themselves. Um, if we're talking about the connection to the larger Buddhist frame, when you are observing the body, you are actually observing the impermanence of bodily sensations. So you are observing pain as it comes and goes. You are observing emotions as they come and go. You observe the little little by little, you go through the body and inch by inch you zoom in. And when doing so, the body itself starts um, dismantling in many ways. So instead of feeling yourself as a whole, you are... Experiencing yourself as um, an aggregate of sensations, waves, movements. Um, and when people arrive to the you know higher stages of meditation, they have these experiences of not self, which is the, you know the one of the central tenets of Buddhism when they say, You know, I'm observing this body, and there is nothing here. Everything is hollow. Everything is just moving. Everything is just, you know, impermanent sensations. Um, So there is a direct connection in that way between the tenant of dissatisfaction, impermanence, and not-self. All these are experienced through the observation of the body.
1: Well, I think I understand that, that connection, and, and I think you put it really well. Um, but I, I want to pursue it a little further, because as you say, and I suppose this relates to what you said about Merleau-Ponty and the natural self, um, mm-hmm. when you relate to the body, um, I, I, and there's a quote in your book that struck me, just a few words, where you, you say that doing this practice gives you a new stability, a new anchoring of self. So, on the one hand, you're anchoring the self, but on the other hand, you're coming to see that the self is without any stable and enduring existence. And at least conceptually, that sounds like a contradiction. So, can you say something about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. It is a paradox in many ways. And um, I I think it really depends on on the level of practice or meditation. So, for example, in one case, um, one of the women that um, in one of the courses I was observing, a woman um, had an experience in which she felt a dissolution, a dissolution of the body, which can happen during meditation when you observe the body. But that's, she was a relatively new student. And that scared her so much that she immediately moved (laughs) in order to to get her sense of self back. Um, So um, on the one hand, the kind of zooming in is um, deconstructing the self. But in order to get to the levels in which you actually experience not self, you have to practice and go to much longer retreats. So... I would say that the majority of people that I um, followed um, were interested in Vipassana not because they realized non-existence through Vipassana. It's because they found an alternative anchor to the self, alternative in the sense that their sense of self is no longer dependent on others on their family, or on their loved ones. Um, One of the the people I interviewed even said that he said, you know, when I I used to get angry or upset, I used to um, call a friend. Now, I don't call a friend. All I do is go to my room and meditate. So I'm not dependent on on others anymore. And these are uh, repeated um, um, ideas that came out through fieldwork. work. Um, So yeah, there is a paradox in which um, people are using a meditation that is supposed to um, lead to the insight of not-self in order to gain an alternative sense of self, an anchoring, even a therapeutic (laughs) um, therapy to the self. Um, And I think this is, by the way, um, a paradox that, um, that is very um, common to to the different spheres of meditation practice in the West. Um, because um, once meditation is introduced to people as a pr- practice that is helping you to relax, is helping you to be independent, to be less attached, um, to, um, to be to become more individualistic in some ways, um, um, to give you anchor in your life, and this is why people are attracted to meditation, then it's not that easy uh, to bring in through that back door (laughs) the ultimate, you know, the ultimate um, religious um, um, end or goal, which is enlightenment. And for most practitioners, Even though some meditation teachers do try to bring it in, at least in later stages of the practice, um, it's usually, it's not for the mass audience. It's for a small number of people um, who end up um, um, continuing the practice. This, by the way, resembles a little bit... um, Um, The paradox that uh, Michel Foucault talks about when he talks about confession, the confession. So the confession was a religious practice that was supposed to help the monks to get rid of their self in many ways. But um, in history, it was then transformed into a therapeutic practice in the psychological room of the psychologist in which people are actually creating a narrative and discovering themselves through the practice of confession. So I think that in many ways meditation went through a similar process. And there is a lot of debate, as you probably know, in the meditation scene, (laughs) um, whether meditation is has lost, you know, or has become so detached from its Buddhist anchors that it has lost its original goal, and maybe meditation th- teachers should think of a way to reconnect it back.
1: Right. but Yeah, it's definitely definitely <laughs> a topic uh, that's that's widely discussed. Um, so, so um, maybe this is another way of coming at the same question. But I would you say that um, when. People get really involved in meditation, and of course, you talk about the people for whom it becomes a way of life, mm-hmm. and that's a mm-hmm. that's a small minority of everybody who engages in these practices. But, but either for those people, or or maybe more generally, um, would you say that that people who do these meditation retreats end up constructing a different narrative of the self? You know, the self as the meditator, the self as the one who's independent and free from the social world?
0: Well, um, it's a mix. Um, They do end up um, having at least um, a part of their self, the ability, the potential and the ability um, to be in that state because... If you if you join a 30-day retreat, that's a very long time of being without social interaction. And by the way, in long meditation retreats, and that's also important, and I discuss it in the book, um, people meditate in solitary meditation cells. So they're very much alone. I mean, they do have the community because there are other people meditating just next to them in the cell on the right, in the cell on the left, um, but they are still in this small cell for hours, you know um, um, usually in a meditation retreat, you meditate eleven hours a day and um and yeah, there is um they. There is a disconnection in many ways, from the social world and an experience of detachment that they describe um, from who they are, um, and also from a sense of stability, um, because in um, in many ways, what gives us stability, or what gives stability to our self- identities, is, um our social relations um is our um, um you know what we do our routines um, in everyday life um so they I think they do construct an alternative but we have to remember that they also live a normal life <laughs> um of a social life they have partners they have families um so they also have this, a dimension in their lives. And in fact, for them, meditation becomes more of a community world because, um, for example, in Massachusetts, um, people who have been meditating for a long time moved um, to live next to the meditation center. Their children go to the same school, their friends are meditators, so they de- Develop a meditator community, which is something that is completely absent um, in the lives of the more, um, let's say, less experienced meditators or the mass, you know, the more mass of uh, Vipassana practitioners. Um, so it's, it stands side by side, um, both, both the thing things. And I, I, they talk about it also as, you know, encountering the Buddhist ultimate reality. When in the meditation retreats, going back to the conventional reality when they are in their everyday life um, and how to maintain that feeling of the ultimate reality, even in everyday life, it's not easy um, because they're not monks. Um, in general, all these, the, the people I studied, none of them, even the most um, advanced meditation teachers, are not monks, so they do have a normal life. They have money, they have possessions. They have to deal um, with the everyday.
1: And and that brings up a question that uh, is not about the more advanced meditators, but the people who, uh, you know, it, let's call them intermediate. I I, I don't really know, you know mm-hmm. whether that's the right word, but but um, people who do. Put a very strong emphasis on meditation and and begin to engage the world differently. You point out that um, this can lead to some uh, tension in their mm-hmm. relationships with the people in their lives who are not meditators, um, because they really are are in some ways they're they're no longer the same person and and perhaps not interacting or dependent in the same way. Can you say something about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. This was. Um This was um, a turning point, an interesting turning point during my research when when, uh, someone suggested that I um, interview also family members of meditators. And that was something I didn't think about before, um, specifically family members that do not meditate. Um, And it's quite common because um, such practices, such as meditation, are not. You know, are not um, done in a family context. Um, in at least in modern life, um, you know, you can choose your practice. One can go and meditate; the other can go and do yoga. <laughs> um, um, maybe someone else is doing something else. So, it's quite common for one person in a family to meditate, but his partner—it could be the wife, or the parents, or the children or sister or brothers um, do not have any connection to this world. And, and it creates very in- interesting tensions um, because people go to a meditation retreat and it can also happen in the first meditation retreat, okay, I- even if it's not yet the intermediate. And they have, you know, for 10 days, they are completely disconnected from their families. And from their friends. Um, and they have this very strong experience of self-change. And they, you know, they step out of the meditation retreats and they feel like they now can deal with anger. They can deal with with pain. Um, they found a different sense of self. And then they go back and a day after they find themselves um, in a fight with their mother <laughs> or, uh, or uh, um, screaming at their children or fighting with his wife um, on, the vo- on the volume of the television <laughs> or whatever, you know, regular social life uh, entails. Um, and um, so this is the first kind of tension that comes up um, because self-change is a complicated thing when you return to your regular social circles, people are expecting you to be what they think you are. They are projecting for you or creating for you an image of the self, and they are expecting you to step into that image. And we all know um, that for example, it could be that I I'm, I haven't seen my mother I don't know for a month and then I go back and suddenly we have a fight as if I'm back to be um, 16 years old. So um, these roles, these roles, these images these that we have in our social relations are key. And it's really tough on both sides. Um, it's tough for the person who wants to change or wants to keep something of the experience he had in the meditation retreat and take it into his or her daily life. And it's tough on the family members who are confused in many ways. So for example, one ex- one of the examples I had was of um, um, someone who used to be, as he described it, um, a kind of, um, um, he called it a, a social guy, okay? A social guy. He liked to have parties and alcohol and and smoking drugs and, and a lot of laughs, you know, uh, and tell jokes and people loved him. And his family, you know, always, they always had jokes, his sister, I interviewed his sister, she said, we always, you know, he was very cynical, and we're a very cynical family, and we used to laugh together, and it was a lot of fun, and he, when he spoke about his self-change, he said, you know, I became much more relaxed, I no longer drink alcohol, I don't do drugs, I have a much balance, much more balance in my life, but when his sister told me about it, she said, you know, I miss the old person. I miss him. We don't do, we don't have loves anymore. It's not the same thing. So um, there are stories of disjunctions between these expectations. Um, and these stories I think also reveal how our families or close friends or significant others um, how important they are in stabilizing the self for us. Uh, But on the other hand, there are also obstacles when we want to change or we want to try and change. Um, And this is also explains why meditation retreats are built in a way that takes you away from the significant others and everyday life and puts you in a community of strangers, um, which is central to this whole idea that this is you know, a social space, but it's a very different social space in comparison to everyday life. Now, on, well, if I, I can was, continue...
1: Oh, yes, okay. <laughs> please go on, go on. <laughs> means, go on. I,
0: now, there are tensions. There are also, in some ways, sometimes there were also resonance with, uh, with the significant others. So people would say something like, you know, my wife used to fight me all the time and now we don't fight anymore and it's a good thing. So the calmness, the relaxation of anger, was usually accepted as a positive thing because we live in a society in which the emotional norms, or let's say, um, um, health, subjective well-being, is usually seen as someone who's who's, who is not violent or um, not having too many conflicts. harmony in social relations. So this was usually accepted as a positive thing. But a level of social disengagement and a feeling, as one of of the women told me, that her husband, she was actually worried, a real anxiety about her husband now not needing her anymore, a realization that the other person is no longer dependent on you. And that could be really scary um, for family members.
1: Well, that's those are really interesting issues. And there are other points in the book that we aren't going to have time to get into that I think are equally interesting. Um, I, I think it's uh, a nice illustration of what happens when someone with a particular Um, expertise or background, in your case sociology, um, combines that with your own personal experience so it's a kind of a phenomenological approach that seems to me very fruitful. So so, Michal Pagas thank you very much for your time. Maybe in closing you could just tell us something about what your uh, next project is what you're working on now.
0: Well, um, I'm still very much interested in questions of The Self and Search for Self and Self-Transformation in Contemporary Culture. Um, And I have um, two projects. Um, One is uh, still connected um, uh, in some level to my interest in Buddhism. I'm looking at psychologists um, that are attracted to spiritual ideas and discourses, um, um, specifically in two contexts. One is... um, Buddhist psychology, the other is Jewish psychology. Um, so that's one project. And I have another big project now that looks at the penetration of ultra orthodox, of, um, popular psychology, such as life coaching, NLP, emotional advising, and so on into the ultra orthodox community in Israel. So, um, The ultra-Orthodox community, which is usually understood as very conservative, has been adopting um, and adapting many contemporary practices that are spiritual and new age. And I hope this will be uh, my next book.
1: (laughs) It sounds like it'll be a great one. Thank you, Michal. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And um, I'm sure our listeners will find it a very interesting read and good luck with your future projects. Take care.